I never know on a service like this if uh, like all these RUF songs have been picked for me or if you did it because you liked them. I, it just always feels a little conspicuous. Like this is, These are all RUF songs. Uh, it's good to be with you tonight and uh, somewhat in an effort to uh, continue the hospitality series. Uh, I've chosen a text from Luke 24. Um, it's, it's an impression and perhaps a malformed one that hospitality is something that we sometimes struggle with that may have been my stage in life. You know, we just kids, busy, we're a transient church. What we tend to be good at as Presbyterians is preaching at people. And so uh, what I was trying to think when I prepared this sermon is how do we combine something that we're naturally pretty good at, ministry of the word, with something we need to grow in and continue to strive to do, which is hospitality. So our text tonight is from Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they, when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen the vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. They urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Kind Father, we pray you would show us wonderful things in your law. Press those into our hearts, bear fruit for your glory, our good, and the good of our neighbor. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. 
there's a 2006 movie called Stranger Than Fiction. I think I've used it as an illustration about 37 times. Uh, if you haven't seen it, though, it's a great film uh, starring uh, Will Ferrell. He is a accountant, uh, a tax man, and uh, archetypal one at that, uh, a man of routine. He does the exact same thing the exact same way every single day. And uh, that all sort of changes one day when he begins to hear a voice narrate his every action. It's, it's, a, it's a voice that's almost always, it's always correct. And basically counting the number of toothbrush strokes, which is the correct number he does every single day. Um, and he somehow manages to go about his life despite the fact this voice uh, is his companion at wherever he goes. He recognizes the voice as that of a well-known author that he's seen on television. But he tries to go about his life as best he can until one morning as he's standing waiting for the box, for his bus, his watch malfunctions and he resets it. And he hears the voice say, little did Harold know that this seemingly innocuous act would result in his imminent death. At which point, uh, Harold, who is a mild-mannered, boring man, begins to scream, seemingly to no one in particular, at the sky. What do you mean I'm going to die? What do you, what's going on? He's just uh, he's losing it there on the corner. And, uh, you know, trying to do something about this story he's a part of, he sets out to change the story. Doesn't know how to do so. He tries to meet the author. He can't find her. Uh, so he does the next best thing, which is he finds a literary professor a well-known literary critic who, uh, for reasons unknown to us, doesn't treat him like a complete madman. He may think he's a madman. But instead, he gives him some really good advice, and he simply says, Harold, what you have to do is find out whether or not you're in a tragedy or a comedy. If you're in a tragedy, there's nothing we can do for you. But if you're in a comedy, everything's going to be great no matter what it looks like. Uh, the two individuals in our story think they're in a tragedy. They're confused, they're disappointed, their hopes have been shattered. As we read this story, we know it's a comedy. Jesus is walking with them, asking questions like, what things? I mean, it's pretty funny. It's a comedy. Uh, he's risen from the dead. We know how the story's gonna end. Um, but they don't. And they don't know the kind of story they're in. They lack clarity. And that's often us, actually. It's often us. We're living out our stories confused and disappointed, uh, either because we're ignorant of the story or we forget it. And uh, we struggle. Uh, part of this has to do with the way we view the Bible. Sometimes we view the Bible as a, a book of wisdom. Uh, and if we follow its good advice, everything will go better. And sometimes we view it... Uh, it's a book of rules, which we or others may or may not keep and then get appropriately punished or not. For some folks, they just view it as a book of, uh, you know, cultural anthropology. Um, but the reality is uh, all those may be a tiny bit or somewhat true, but none of them account fully for what the scriptures are, which is the true story of what God has doing and is doing and will do through Jesus. And uh, when we forget that story, we really suffer the consequences in life. And tonight we're just going to review that the Bible is the grand story of Jesus at work, delivering us. We're going to look at Scripture story, 
and what's it like to see Jesus, and then what living in the story looks like. So we start with Scripture story, and uh, one of the interesting things about the story we have here in Luke 24 is uh, these two folks are not struggling for a lack of facts. They've got plenty of facts. They know the characters. They know the events. They're recounting these things in verse 14 and 18 and 19. The ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, even the report of his resurrection, they have all the pieces. They can't put it together. They have lots of things, and yet they're confused and disappointed. And you hear the disappointment in verse 21. We had hoped. That means they're no longer hoping, by the way. Right? Hope's over. Um, and they've had reports from people they know post-resurrection, and they're still confused and skeptical. Uh, this is a good reminder for all of us, especially those of you that may know a lot, may be struggling with doubt, or, or working in, with people that you love uh, or don't love, you're just enduring them at work, who are struggling with Christianity, the temptations to think, if I can just give them enough things, they'll figure it out. But the facts are never enough. They're insufficient on their own. Um, you can have the facts and still be confused, still think this is a tragedy. And Jesus doesn't just give them facts. He makes clear the source and the aim and the plan. He reminds them of the source. The prophets wrote about these things. Those who spoke God's word told us these things would happen. Moses, the prophets, all the scriptures, all the Old Testament foretold what you've just seen. All those many stories in the end are telling one grand story, one aim, God's plan to deliver and, and they sort of are onto that. They understand. Verse 21, we thought he was going to be the one to deliver Israel. And uh, that's close. Um, you know, right field, wrong base. Uh, much bigger, much better than that. Much broader scripture from Genesis to Revelation paints the picture of bigger and better. Every tribe, every tongue, every language. It's a bigger story than just Israel's. And... Uh, the story of redemption is not just that he might deliver a small nation from its political oppressors. No, the story of redemption, of deliverance is a people well-loved, well-provided for, well-created, gone selfishly, corruptively on their own way, pursued by God for millennia at great cost and brought back to himself. It's a much better and beautiful story than they know. Jesus reminds them that uh, this has been God's plan, verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? All these things that have happened in the last week have confounded them. It's partly why they're confused. And he's saying, no, those very things were the plan. They were foretold. The plan was the deliverer's humiliation and then his exaltation. The suffering was not an accident. This was part of God's great plan of deliverance for his people. And it's not just some impersonal blueprint. No, it's very personal. The plan narrows in history down to a singular individual, a man. The things concerning himself in verse 27. The plan is a man. The Bible's about 
a coming deliverer. And Jesus makes it very clear in verse 27, all this is about me. All these things that have happened, this big text, all these stories tell the story of God providing a deliverer. And it might be the case that some text might come to mind for you, Genesis 3, God's going to provide a conqueror, or maybe some Christmas time texts like Isaiah 9, or, you know, promised virgin, or um, whatever the case might be. Uh, and those are all very true and helpful, but, but Jesus is saying that all the texts in some way point to mankind's great need for me, or how I have foreshadowed the great deliverer to come. It's about the man who's come. Uh, what this most clearly means, and this is a hard thing for every one of us, no matter whether we've been a mature Christian for a long time or we don't know anything about Christianity, what it most clearly means is the story is not about me. It's not about us. The big, big story is about Jesus. And uh, that's, that's actually really, really great news. Um, it's a great, big, beautiful, better story than we could ever devise on our own. Um, we, we heard a testimony for at the church this morning of an, of an individual who described her path as seeking her own way, even her own religion, and how that led to really not good, poor things, right? Just an unhealthy life. It felt like a cul-de-sac of darkness. That's my phraseology. I'll get her feedback on it later. And uh, I I see it all the time, friends. I I see that all the time. Almost all of us are trying to do some version of that, but some people are doing it quite intentionally, spiritually. And we're invited into such a bigger, better story, the story of what God is doing in the world in Jesus well, uh, one of the interesting things about this text is that these, these fellows are walking the road to Emmaus with Jesus but can't see him. And uh, it's, it's, I can't decide if it's tragic or funny. It's probably both at the same time. Uh, and the reality is we can be like that too. Uh, we struggle to see Jesus sometimes. And uh, why is it the case? Why is it the case that they can't see him and that we struggle too as well? And uh, one of the things that Jesus points out about them is their dullness that they're dull to the story. In verse 25, he calls them, O foolish ones. Uh, and that, that phrase, uh, that word uh, foolish there actually means dull. Um, you know, you can be ignorant of the story. You might not know it. Or you could, might know the story, but there's something else that dulls you to the reality. And what that usually is, is your preoccupation with your own story your preoccupation with whatever is most important to you at the time. And you can hear that maybe a little bit in these two folks. They had their own idea of how this story was supposed to go, verse 21. We hoped he was the one. And when their version of the story, their glory story, didn't come true, they were dull, foolish, blind to the Savior right in front of them. Uh, They're also struggling with doubt. Jesus names it in verse 25. You are slow of heart to believe. They have facts, they have stories, they have testimony, and yet they remain skeptical. Um, and this is, uh, frankly, just the nature of the human heart. Um, 
you know. Uh, it, it says in verse 24 that they've heard reports of Jesus' resurrection, but him they did not see. And there's, uh, Matt referred to this this morning, there's still this uh, belief among some, like if I could just see it or have proof, I would believe. And I think that's hogwash. Utter hooey. Because the human heart is dull and stubborn. And there's this lovely, confusing verse at the end of Matthew where the resurrected Jesus has gathered his people together. He's been with them for quite a while. This is right before the Great Commission. It talks about some worshiping him. This is like five seconds before takeoff. He's about to ascend into heaven. And the the text simply says, and some doubted. Like he's been with them in resurrection presence and ministry, caring for them for some time, and they still doubt that's not Jesus' fault. That's the nature of the human heart. There's something about the heart that's slow to believe. And the reality is we still want to see, and maybe we don't want to see with our eyes, but we want an experience. We want to know Jesus is close. We want to feel close. And those can be good things. Uh, in the end, if that's you struggling or you know someone like this, uh, my, my main encouragement is always the same. Keep struggling. Um, it's better to you continue to struggle with doubt than to stop struggling. Just lay there and let it roll over you. Um, no, press in, ask, move towards it, ask your questions, wrestle with the biblical story. My contention is this is the best story. It makes the best sense of reality. It makes the best sense of the life we've been given, and it's a true story. It's a reliable story, and uh, I can believe every word of it, and uh, I have reason to do so because the guy that wrote it rose from the dead. Um, So, we struggle to see Jesus because we're dull to the story, because we doubt, and lastly, because we don't often see the necessity of it, and I think Jesus addresses this with them in verse 26. Guys, was it not necessary that the Christ suffer these things? He had to bring it up. In other words, you should know your Old Testament enough to know. I mean, this was talked about quite a bit, suffering, serving. You know, you see this in the sacrificial system. There had to be a sacrifice. Was it not necessary? And uh, their answer would be like, um, uh, uh, I don't know. I should have thought about that. Um, they, yes, it was necessary, but they didn't see the need for it, that suffering should come before glory. And that's often the case for us, too, that we don't see the necessity of what Jesus had to go through. And that's because sin, our sin doesn't seem very serious to us. It's because God's love might seem vague to us. Um, but all these things make it the case that we often struggle to see Jesus clearly. We're dull. We're doubting. We don't see the necessity of a sacrifice for us. Uh, nerd question. This will work at a Sunday evening service during the Super Bowl. Question, Super Bowl. Uh, any Dostoevsky fans in the room? People that have read Dostoevsky? This question played a lot better last week at the University of Michigan. Um, so if you, re- if you uh, read much Dostoevsky, his novels, there's always a Christ-like figure. He's a very meek person. Uh, in one of his books, that person's literally called the idiot. Um, but a very meek, 
quiet person. For those who haven't read Dostoevsky, we do have a modern parallel that will help you understand what Dostoevsky was trying to do, and that is the Lego movie. Uh, in the Lego movie, uh, we have uh, the prophecy. Uh, the people are awaiting a deliverer named Special, and uh, when construction worker Emmett Burkowski discovers the piece of resistance, uh, it would seem that he is the Special. However, no one, literally no one will buy it because that's not what anyone expected. Um, he doesn't fit their profile. Uh, doubters are plentiful, especially the, the most persistent doubters are, are those heroes, in the, in the movie's full of heroes, who had their own stories. They're highly resistant to Emmett being the special because they're supposed to be the special. Uh, they can't conceive how this plain, humble construction worker could be the one. Later on, they realize he's exactly what they needed. It's a little bit of a silly illustration, uh, but again, I think we can often be like them. Uh, you read so much of the Gospels, you see Jesus in his death and humiliation, and you never would say this as a Christian, but part of you, part of you, and if you're not a Christian, maybe a lot of you would say, still sort of a loser. I mean, he lost. I mean, he died. He didn't win. And I am going to win. I'm a winner. My plan's going to work. I've got a story. I've got a goal. I've got an aim. And I'm going to work it. And I'm going to succeed. And again, I don't know that we put this out here, but that's the way so many of us live. I don't know that I really need that guy. It's the way we so often live. And that's why we struggle to see our need for Jesus until our glory stories run their short end and we run into reality and we struggle and our plans don't. Uh, we run into the reality of a dark, short cul-de-sac and uh, it's not all that we thought it was going to be. And we begin to see our own heart's need and maybe we begin to wrestle with doubt in a good way. And we begin to see Jesus uh, for who he really is. All that to say, and, and I like to tell my, my young, ambitious college student friends, this is good news for you, actually. Um, because if you haven't ever really suffered a great deal, a great deal of disappointment or confusion in your life, because you've only ever won, the good news is when you get there, maybe for the first time ever, you should know that in your deep disappointment, and feeling like there's nothing to live for because you've lost everything. Maybe now for the first time, you can actually see Jesus clearly because you know your need. Because you know your need. Uh, the good news is, even if you don't feel that about yourself, there's a whole lot of people in the world that are disappointed and confused, that know their need. This is an opportunity for us to invite them in to a Savior that knows their need and is willing to show himself to them. Uh, one of the really cool things about this uh, text, um, I'm going to share a story real quick. Uh, Helen Keller, it's been a while, Helen, um, 100 years ago, um, Helen lost both her sight and her hearing, making it hard for her to speak. And the way she learned to speak, you may know this, is she put her hands in people's mouth. So, 
as they formed sounds, she slowly began to realize what I need to do in order to speak. This is a weird, really <laughs> gutty, earthy analogy. Uh, but, but the way Jesus works through our dullness, our dumbness, is, is he, he, he puts us in Scripture. Like he sticks us in his mouth, in his words. That's what we need. We have to be immersed in his words or we won't get it. And what I love about this text is you have these two folks struggling in their disappointment, struggling in their confusion, dull and doubting. They can't see Jesus. They're walking down the road with them, and Jesus does not say, yo, hey, wake up, slap them around. It's me right here. What does he do? He gives them a Bible study. He gives them a Bible study, perhaps one of the longest and best Bible studies ever. And I think what that tells us is if those guys then with him needed a Bible study, how much more do I need one now? Like if they couldn't see him then without the words, I mean, this is the gift of Jesus to us. He gives us what we need. Let's talk real quick about living in the story. We'll conclude with that. What does it look like for us to live in this story? And when we do it, how are we marked by it? And uh, one of the things, one of the best things, especially as you get older, <laughs> is uh, when you read the story and understand the story, uh, you are able to, to live with greater hope. And when you understand the big story, the story of creation and fall and redemption and consummation, that the world was created beautiful, but we broke it and God's at work redeeming all things, as we know where the story's going, we have the gift of perspective. We have the comfort of hope. We, we learn over time. I may have grandiose plans for myself. I may have my own glory stories. And I may get everything I want and be disappointed. <laughs> or I may never get what I wanted and still be pleased. But it's all just a thread in the tapestry. I live as part of a much bigger and better story. And as we struggle in life, with suffering, our own, and sorrow, and loss, we get to live in light of resurrection reality. That in Jesus, we have one who has the power and goodness to turn disappointment into joy. We get to live with greater hope. Uh, we get to live knowing that God is present. One of the great things about this text, and so many, is toward the end, it's clear that everywhere Jesus goes, he is uh, revealing himself, and as he does, he's renewing people. Um, that's what happens in a multitude of times here at the end of the text. He shows up. When people see him, they are renewed, refreshed, convicted, inspired. Um, but the other thing that's cool about this story is, is he, he seems to be everywhere, uh, these two, once they figure out uh, who he is, run off to Jerusalem. And once he gets there, the people in Jerusalem are like, yeah, yeah, we just saw him too. He uh, seems to be everywhere. Um, and that's, that's fitting. This is what Jesus is doing. He's at work everywhere, enabling people to see him and renewing them and reviving them, refreshing them as he does so. And uh, living in the story means uh, also that we have good news that we feel like we have to share. 
One of the interesting things about this uh, story that I really get a kick out of is how toward the end of the day, as they draw close uh, in verse 33, and it's getting toward evening, uh, Jesus is about to go his own way, and they're like, nah, nah, stay with us, it's getting too late, you don't want to go out there, um, sort of pleading with him to stay, you don't want to go out there, um, stay with us, it's too dangerous, you need to turn in for the night. And then once they figure out who Jesus is, you know, a couple minutes later, they're like, we have to leave right now and go tell everybody who Jesus is. And they hightail it back to Jerusalem as fast as they possibly can. It's so cool. Um, that is the nature of the good news. I've got to go tell people about this right now. That's the great, big, better story uh, that we get to live in. That's the uh, story that shapes and characterizes our lives if we're as children. That provides comfort in our loss, direction in our confusion. Um, children of a certain age, that's some older community group, right? So this is a little different. But if you grew up about my age, um, you didn't really grow up with many video games. Like my first video game was a small, I wish I still had this thing. It was like an arcade game, but it was a single arcade game in a box. So if I still had it, I think I'd probably be rich. Um, but before there were like individual games, like you could get like a Sega or a Nintendo, we did this thing called going to the library. Um, and uh, between third and sixth grade, uh, the books that were all the rage were choose your own adventure books. Anybody remember choose your own adventure books? Uh, these are these narratival books that would take you on a number of different uh, paths and you would make a decision and it would say, oh great, and then you'd turn to this page as directed and then you would find that you just made a terrible decision and lost your limbs or something like that. It's a great way to learn the consequences of your decisions. Um, well, one particular story um, named Inside UFO 54-40 uh, revolved around the search for paradise that was difficult to reach. Uh, it described a, a player finding that paradise and, a, and enjoying it forever. The problem upon closer inspection was there was no storyline in that book that led to that page. Pretty clever, pretty clever writer messing with people like that, uh, making some pretty profound philosophical statements. Uh, and that's the reality for lots of people. They're living for a glory story that they can't reach. And disappointment and confusion is going to be the norm. And the hospitality here is we get to invite them into a bigger, better story. We get to, like, we're in the confusion sometimes, too. We're walking down the road. We don't always know what's going on. But we do know every Sunday Jesus is going to show up share the word with us, remind us who he is, show us himself, remind us where we're going. And what I'm encouraging you to do, friends, is, hey, invite some other confused and disappointed people to come with you. We can do that. Let's call it hospitality and ministry of the word. So bring your confused and disappointed friends along. We can trust Jesus to meet them with his word and his goodness. Let's pray.